sort of slowed our pace as we have been going through Romans. We very early on took very large sections, and as I noted coming into Romans chapter 8, that what has been called the Great Eight, the, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture, we have slowed down just a little bit, and we're going to just look uh, at, at a few verses this morning, Romans chapter 8, and we're picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We're looking together at just three verses, Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. Uh, what are some of the greatest verses in the Bible? Some that no doubt many of you have memorized, that you've known since you were very young. I've known them most of my life. And yet, I think this morning that maybe there are things in them that I hope will be new to you. There is always that reality that we think we know a verse, we think we've known it our whole life, and yet maybe we haven't really understood it quite as well as we ought to have, and I think Romans 8.28 may be one of those verses for us this morning. And so we are looking together at those three verses, Romans 8.28 to verse 30. The apostle has been in the context of telling believers at the outset of chapter, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. We are justified. Our sins are forgiven. We've been accepted. No one can condemn you if you're in Christ. Nothing can bring a charge against God's elect. Paul will end with that by saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, You may remember the end of chapter 7 was, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the end of chapter 8 is, if God is for us, who can be against us? We're meant to see those things um, compartmentally fitting together with one another, pieced together. So, well, and coming up on those verses, at the end of this chapter, Paul now says, uh, speaking to those that are going to suffer, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the account of Corrie Tinboom and her. Corrie Tinboom was at the time a very young woman in the Netherlands and writing about the invasion of the Nazis there in 1940 and what a radical impact that had on everyone Um, living there in the Netherlands and the atrocities that Nazi Germany brought with them and the impact that that had on Corrie Ten Boom and on her sister Betsy and on her family, a very heart-wrenching story and yet one that is meant to encourage us as we consider that God may call us to suffer in similar ways. Um, As I've been preaching through this section of Romans, I've realized that none of us have really suffered in any significant way. 
which is why we often complain so much and find so many things to gripe about. But when you read about suffering saints like Corey Ten Boom and the awful things and the joy that she had and the prayerfulness and the heart that she had for others and the spiritual graces that manifested themselves as she went through that. And one of the things, and maybe you're aware of this and maybe not, one of the things that Corey Ten Boom loved to reflect on was that the hard providences of life are like the backside of a weaver's loom and the the scrambled and tangled threads on the backside of the weaver's loom and yet what lay on the other side. She would oftentimes, after um, everything had ended and the war had ended, she would oftentimes speak in gatherings and she she would hold up a piece of embroidery and she would show all the tangled backside of that embroidery And she would say, does God always grant us what we ask for in prayers? No, she says, not always. Sometimes he says no. She said that is because God knows what we do not know. This piece of embroidery on the backside, it's chaos. And then she she would turn it around and she would show another image that had been woven into this tapestry. And she, she would say, but on this side the beautiful illustration. She said, in our lives, we see the wrong side, but God sees his side all the time. Now, Corey Timboom, in The Hiding Place, would cite a famous poem. I want to read you this by Grant Tuller. She would cite this often. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. It's a really magnificent illustration, and it's one that the Apostle Paul is essentially trying to help these newer believers in Rome understand that that the common lot of Christians is suffering. The common lot of believers is hardship. You know, one of the worst things that anyone can ever say to someone is, if you will come to Christ, everything will get better. Because the reality is, whenever we come to Christ, things always get harder. Things always get harder. He's promised us trials and afflictions, difficulties. On top of the fact that now we wrestle with our sin, what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, that warfare, that battle, that that indwelling sin, and yet Paul is saying that, that in the midst of the suffering, the Christian can have a strong consolation. Now, that really comes to the head here in the verses that we're looking at this morning, and I want us to just consider two very brief things as we look at these verses. First, the believer's comfort in suffering and affliction. And then secondly, the reason for the believer's comfort. The believer's comfort in suffering and then the reason for the believer's comfort. We'll notice that the apostle, having told us that the Holy Spirit helps us when we're suffering, that he intercedes with us, within us with groanings that cannot be uttered, And there is groaning everywhere. Creation is groaning. We're groaning. The Spirit's groaning within us, hoping for the resurrection. Paul knows that his readers may say, well, that's great, Paul. Are you telling me the only thing that can carry me through the sufferings and the afflictions is that I am going to be raised up to eternal life on the last day? 
And Paul's essentially saying in verses 28 through 30, oh no, there is that future hope, and that is meant to sustain us. But there is a present comfort that is to quiet the hearts and the minds of the people. Not something that, that is entirely future, but something that is working right in the here and now. And Paul says that is the truth, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, the Apostle Paul is not, he is not some sort of naively optimistic Christian. I have met I have met a dozen or so of these individuals uh, during my um, 16 or or so years of pastoral ministry, and whenever there is something challenging or difficult, they they just adopt this sort of, well, you know, it'll be all right attitude. That's not the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Apostle Paul is one that says, we have a sentence of death in ourselves. We are at an end of ourselves. We were burdened beyond belief. I, in the first year of planting a church, felt the pressures and the hardships, and I was unburdening uh, that that burden that I felt on another brother in ministry, and he very unwisely said to me, if you don't get a grip on this, it's going to disqualify you from ministry. And I remember how angry that made me, because the Apostle Paul wasn't a glib, naively optimistic individual. This was a man that felt the weight of the challenges, the opposition from within, from without. He felt it on every side, hard-pressed on every side. He says in 2 Corinthians that we felt as though we had the sentence of death in us. That's not a glib, just, just say it's going to be okay. Neither, let me say this this morning, is the Apostle Paul saying everything's just going to work out fine. Because the Apostle Paul knew that everything is not going to work out fine for many people in the end. Paul is not saying everything is just going to be fine in the end. What Paul is saying is there is a secret well for believers in the fact that while we may not see how it's all working together for good, that God is weaving that he has sovereignly distributed in our lives. And that at the end, he is going to turn that cloth around. And while all we see is chaotic and tangled threads now, and are grieved and frustrated by them, he is going to show us that glorious picture of the crown of life that he has woven there for his people. Um, John Calvin puts this so marvelously. He says, so far are the troubles of this life from hindering our salvation that on the contrary, they are helps to it. Isn't that interesting? All those things we hate are actually helps to our salvation. All the things that make us feel like we're about to come undone, that, that, we, have, that we have the enemy breathing down upon us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, all of those things So far, Calvin says, from being hindering our salvation are only helps to it. Calvin says, for by a wonderful contrivance, God turns those things which seem to be evils in such a way as to promote our salvation. Isn't that amazing? Um, I was speaking with someone this week who has longed 
for more of the felt presence of God and has been troubled by not feeling the felt presence of God more in their life. And, and I said to them, you know, so often we want the, the, the precious felt presence of God, but if we had that all the time, we would trust in what we're feeling, not in the God that we are to be trusting in, whose mysterious ways are, whose providential ways are mysterious. Sinclair Ferguson has often said, so often when we think we're trusting in God because things are going well, we're just trusting in the fact that things are going well. We're not actually trusting in him. And so the Lord distributes challenges and hardships and trials and afflictions, sicknesses and opposition and persecution. And he meets these things out and his people are weighed down heavily by them, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it to to set back or hinder their salvation. He does it to advance their salvation. You know, this counts here. Notice what Paul says there in verse 28. He says, we know. Notice that, we know, and we know. He wants you to be armed with that mind because so often we are not armed with that. We get in the, in the fray of some challenge, some difficulty, and all we see is the challenge and the difficulty. And, and Paul's saying, listen, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, what does that all things include? Certainly in the context It includes persecution for the name of Christ. It includes opposition because of Christ. It includes uh, certainly afflictions from others, from without, um, challenges within. And yet I would go even further. I don't think Paul is simply limiting the all things here in verse 28 to just the hardships, the opposition, the suffering, the, the contentions, the persecutions that come from out there. I think Paul is including even the grappling and the wrestling with sin within. Augustine, the early church father, essentially said that even the sins of the saints by the guiding providence of God are so far from doing them harm that they are working to advance their salvation. Isn't that awesome? We read this morning about King David. Let me, let me illustrate this for you this morning. King David committed three very egregious sins during his reign as king. He took another man's wife to himself and had an adulterous relationship. He then premeditated and maliciously plotted his murder. And then he, in pride, later numbered the people of Israel. Those were the three egregious sins, and there were grave consequences. The sword never departed from his house. David had turmoil among his own children constantly. The kingdom was fraught with challenges because of David's sin. And yet, listen to this. Listen to this. It would be the the second son that David would have with Bathsheba, Solomon, who would be the king who reigned, who became a type of Christ and would show forth what it was that Jesus is the prince of peace, who would extend the kingdom from the rivers to the ends of the earth, all because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and Uriah. And then in the numbering of the people, you may or may not remember, David counted the people and God was furious with him because of his pride. And the Lord sent a plague, a destroying plague, and 70,000 people were wiped out by the destroying angel of the Lord. But when David sacrificed, God brought the plague to an end and David bought the piece of land from Ornan the Jebusite. 
And David secured that piece of land and he sacrificed there to the Lord. And you know what happened? On that piece of land, the temple was built on that piece of land so long after. You see, God was weaving even David's sins together to fulfill his purposes. That's marvelous. Now, if he can do that with our sin, he can do it with all the things that are external to us, as hard as they often are. You know, I think back to being a young Christian in my 20s, and I certainly didn't feel this like I feel it as I push 50. (laughs) You feel this the older you get. You don't feel it when you're young. You haven't had time to experience how much hardship there is, and there's a lot of hardship, and there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of difficulty, and it doesn't do a minister of the gospel any good to the people of God for him not to tell them that. And yet, we know, isn't that marvelous? We know that all things are going to work together for good. Now, to who? Because I've already told you, that's not for everyone. There are many people that it's not going to work together for good for. And Paul qualifies this in two ways. Notice this. First, he says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Now, he is saying this is a word for true believers, those who are trusting in the Lord, who love him, who love his word, who love his ways, who love the Lord Jesus. And if you are such a person, then Paul is saying all things, whatever they are. You know, I was thinking about this this week in preparation. Some of you here this morning have suffered more hardship than I have ever suffered, and many have suffered. And I thought about those who have suffered those hardships. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, other very difficult things. This is is where the believer goes in the midst of those hardships, we know that all things are working together for good for those who love God. And then notice Paul nuances this, and he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I think Paul does that for one very simple reason. I think the apostle knows that someone could hear this and think, Well, I love God, therefore I deserve for good things to happen to me. And what Paul is saying in this second qualification is, if you love God, it's because he called you according to his purpose when you didn't love him. It's because he called you, he effectually drew you to Christ, because he has a purpose for you in your life. And he's working his purposes out First by drawing you, then by enabling you to love him. Think how the Apostle John says this. He says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for all the world. And he says, and he says um, that it's not, it's not because we loved him that those things are true, but because he loved us. It's not because we loved him, but because he first loved us. Um, Paul is saying if, if you love the Lord Jesus, it's because he first loved you. He drew you. He called you. He brought you out of darkness. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you a new heart. And if you are such a one, if he did that for you at the beginning of your Christian life, 
then you can be confident that he is going to work everything else out, all the hard and evil and difficult, all the good things, all the things he's working out for your good and ultimately for your salvation. Now, how do I know, how do I know that this is true? Well, there is a little intimation of it in the Old Testament. You'll remember the life of Joseph. And you'll remember how Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was thrown in the pit. He was sold to the Ishmaelites. He was carried down to Egypt. You'll remember all the hardship he went through. He is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, though he remains a man of integrity. He is then thrown into prison. He is forgotten in the prison. He gets he, he reveals the dreams of the baker and the butler, but he is forgotten. And then finally, he is brought out of that pit. And then remember, the famine comes, and his brothers come. And, and, and when he finds finally reveals himself to them. And they are frightened about what he's going to do now that he's in this position of power. What does Joseph say? Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Isn't that marvelous? All the way back in redemptive history, so early in human history, God was working in Joseph to illustrate exactly what he says here. And there is yet a more glorious example, isn't there, in the Lord Jesus himself. Um, I want to read to you something I meditated on a lot this week. Sinclair Ferguson notes um, in Acts 2.23 there when Peter is preaching at Pentecost and and he says uh, what you meant... Uh, evil against the Christ. You with lawless hands took him and crucified him. But that was done according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was planned by God. You took him, you crucified him. God was sovereign over it. Listen to what Sinclair says. The worst thing, the most evil thing that has ever happened in the world, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, was under the sovereign superintendence of God. Think about that. The worst thing, the most evil thing that has ever happened in the history of the world was under the sovereign superintendence of God. 100% the actions of wicked men, 100% the divine strategy coming to pass, amazingly coming to pass through the activities of wicked men working together for the saving good of those who love God in Jesus Christ. Ferguson says that means no matter who does what to you, listen very carefully, No matter who does what to you, you can smile in the furnace because you know that the worst they can do to you is make them an instrument in the hands of the Heavenly Father to do you good. That's awesome. That's awesome. No no matter what someone does to us, we can rest in the fact that they are just instruments in the hands of the sovereign God to do you good if you love him and you've been called according to his purpose. That's the great comfort that God gives believers when we suffer with our sin in the good times and the hard times. There is a reason for this comfort, and the apostle here secondly really roots everything he's saying in verse 28, in verses 29 and 30. This is oftentimes missed. Notice how Paul roots this. Notice this. He says in verse 28, and we know... For those who love God, all things work together for good. And then notice verse 29, for, that connective, that connective for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son. Now, um, this says to us that God had a purpose in for loving the elect, in, predestin- in predestining us unto eternal life, and that purpose was that he might conform us to the image of Christ. That's the purpose. A lot of times when debates happen about the doctrine of election or predestination, and Paul is going to go very deep into these things in this book, people sometimes set that out as a sort of philosophical construct up here, and they're like, well, I don't like that idea, and it feels like blah, 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 and every kind of argument. And Paul connects God's foreknowledge, his predestination, with his ultimate purpose, and that is to conform us to the image of his son. That's why the hardships are placed in our lives. That's why the challenges come. That's why the difficulties and the heartbreaks come. Because God is committed to conforming us to the image of Christ. And let me say this this morning. Whenever you are called to suffer, you must remember that the Lord Jesus suffered far more than we will ever suffer, but that he suffered for us. He did it all for us. He endured it all, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, bringing many sons to glory. He drank the bitter cup to bring you to glory. He poured his soul out unto death at the hands of wicked and ruthless men to save our filthy souls and bodies. And if he could endure that, And in sinless dependence on his Father, and with great joy would endure that. And we are assured that God is wanting to conform us to the image of Christ. Then we can be assured that God has purposed to put those things in our lives so that we will grow more and more into the image of Christ. And let me say this this morning. You are never going to bear the image of Christ in this life in any way that closely resembles who he is, and you will not until we're there with him in glory. And then that full image is revealed, the resurrection glory, the sinless glory. When every single believer who didn't know why the tapestry looks so chaotic in their life will on that day be shown to be part of that glorious picture on the back side of that tapestry. And you'll understand where all the weavings were going and what was being painted. You know, there's a marvelous truth in what Paul says here, and many have noted in verses 29 and 30 that he gives us what is called the golden chain of salvation, the golden chain. William Perkins, the old Puritan, like to speak of it. It's, it's how the benefits of Christ come to us. He foreknows us. He predestines us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. He adopts us. He glorifies us. All the benefits of redemption, and he's tracing them out on this chain. And, and one of the marvelous things is where that chain begins. And it begins with God foreknowing you. Foreknowing you. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't know something about you, and he learned it, and and that's what foreknowledge is. Listen to this. John Murray, 
says to know in scripture is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Paul is essentially saying, this is virtually equivalent to Paul saying, those whom he foreloved. Isn't that marvelous? Those he foreloved. Why would you become the beneficiary of, of him calling you to Christ? Why would you become the beneficiary of being justified and accepted because of Christ? Why would you become the beneficiary of being conformed to the image of Christ? Not because of anything in you. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of a decision you've made. Not because of prayer you've prayed. Not because of your own supposed desire for piety and holiness. None of that. It's because God for loved you. And so he chose you. And he marked you off. And he said, I am going to send my son in union with them, to redeem them, and to give them every benefit until I glorify them, and they bear the full image of Christ. You know, I I think how far I am from that, and I know how far all of us are from that in this life, and it's good for us. It's good for us to acknowledge that we are very far from bearing the renewed image of Christ in us very far from it. And it's good for us to realize that because then when the trials and the difficulties, the affliction and the hardship come, we can know that God is working out his purpose and wanting to make us look more and more like the Lord Jesus. In all of those sweet graces, that merciful disposition, that humble-mindedness of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ, the purity of the Lord Jesus, the the God-centeredness of the Lord Jesus, the reverence of the Lord Jesus, the love of truth in the Lord Jesus, all of those glorious attributes harmonizing in him, we are very far from that where we are. We will not be far from that forever. You see, Paul is carrying us to glorification at the end of verse 30 because he realizes there is a terminus to any hardship or trial or suffering that we may endure in this life. And that will be realized in the glorification of believers on the last day. And then we will be able to sing these words, and I love the words of John Sharp. Twixt gleams of joy and clouds of doubt, our feelings come and go. Our daily state is tossed about in ceaseless ebb and flow. No mood of feeling, form of thought is constant for a day. But thou, O Lord, thou changest not. The same thou art alway. That's the anchor for our souls. The unchanging God who foreloved us is the same unchanging God who sovereignly distributes everything that happens in our lives and who will ultimately glorify us. And we can be confident. And we can say with Paul, listen carefully, we can say with Paul, we know. By the way, I want you this morning to try to say that in the first person. I know. I know that all things must work together for good for me. Because God has called me and I love him. 
and because he has began that work and he is going to bring it to completion. I hope that you'll be encouraged as you think about these things this morning to be asking yourself the question, am I really, am I really believing these things? You know, it's easy to say I believe these things when things are going well, when everything seems to be going the way you want it to. And it's a whole lot more challenging to say, I know that all is going to work well for me in the end when you're in the crucible. If you have never come to Christ, I want to say what I said at the outset this morning. All is not going to work well for you unless you come to him and trust in him. All will not work well for you, and you will not be able to say, I know. And all you will be left with is bitterness and complaint and bitterness of spirit when anything hard comes upon you. But if you come to Christ, he will carry the heavier load. Our Lord carried the heavy load. He carried his cross upon which he was crucified for sinners. And he will help carry that burden of the crosses that are placed on us. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. I hope that you will be looking to him in faith as the one who is going to finally and ultimately show us the beauty of the tapestry that he is weaving in our lives. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge the weakness of our hearts and our minds, how easily we buckle under the least affliction. How often, Lord, we allow the smallest uh, disruption to our ease or comfort to um, weigh on us in a way in which we respond sinfully with complaint and with uh, bitterness of spirit and soul. Lord, you have meted out for us every single circumstance of our lives, and we thank you that you are sovereign. But even more than that, Lord, we thank you that you are working your divine purpose to show us how all things that you are weaving into our lives are ultimately working together for good. Our God, would you strengthen us with these truths as we meditate on what the Lord Jesus suffered for us and the good that you would bring from that. Would you strengthen our minds and hearts in the knowledge of this? Would you give us great confidence, Lord, that even as you are conforming us to the image of Christ, you are going to bring that to completion in our glorification. We thank you that you have foreloved us. Lord, though we were unlovable and unlovely in ourselves, so we have nothing good in us, Lord, except for wounds and bruises and what is evil and ugly. We thank you that you have drawn us to the Lord Jesus by your love that you have united us to him and that you are enabling us to trust in him. And so, Lord, would you help each one of us here present to arm ourselves with this mind and to be prepared for what you might bring into our lives. We pray that you would help us to anticipate the glory of that full image of the glorified saints on that last day of which we will be a part gloriously conformed to the image of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.